0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast, Go to theCatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. I'm a member of the Florida Board of Education and I am happy to have Commissioner of Education of Florida, Manny Diaz, on with me this week to discuss some of the really exciting things that have been taking place in education in Florida especially not caving into the secular agenda of critical race theory and gender ideology within the classrooms. There's really too much to talk about in a short interview because in Florida, the Department of Education is really safeguarding young minds and hearts from lots of dangerous trends, and we should really make America Florida, which is one of my favorite sayings for the upcoming political season. But first, on a sad note... Given the terrible acts of violence we've seen this week against our brothers and sisters in Israel and the way all of that is horrifically unfolding, I'm thankful for my TCA team, Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire, who've joined me with their reactions. All three of us have been there on Catholic pilgrimage, and as mothers, daughters, granddaughters, cousins, sisters, we are just aghast at what, um, at the type of pain and suffering that families are going through there. We also consider the Blessed Mother herself a Jewish woman raising her son, the Christ child, in dangerous times, just as dangerous as today. And we consider that this is the month of the Holy Rosary. We pray in a special way for all of those suffering in the Holy Land Thank you for joining me, ladies, on our weekly show. We have a very sad topic that we want to talk about. Um, as of the time of this recording, it's been two days since um, Hamas poured over the border of Gaza into Israel, and the the barrage of news, commentary, of videos, of of pictures, of stories of the kind of atrocity and and human degradation and torture and and killing in the bloodiest of ways the most innocent of people is absolutely mind boggling i don't know how you two feel but i'm i feel almost ashamed of being human that that kind of thing is even even something that's possible inside the human heart that that kind of ugliness exists i feel like the gates of hell were opened and the devils all poured out and and we're seeing what hell is like, because that that must be what hell is like. So I wonder how it's, I'm sure you're having many of the same reactions.
1: It's total barbarism. And um, I mean, it's very reminiscent of the ISIS terrorism that we saw several years ago. It's just it's unspeakable. I, I think we all just have such heavy hearts. I just keep thinking, you know, what is a Catholic response other than to pray, you know, to Our Lady of Peace or, you know, it's the month of October, it's the month of the rosary to keep praying the rosary, you know, for wisdom for the leaders of Israel to know how to respond to know how to deal with the hostages. I mean, just every day the reports are worse. And, you know, the recent reports, they, they brought in the media to this town along the border. You know, it was one of these kibbutzes The you know, it's an agrarian community, a peaceful agrarian community. And apparently this is the site of the butchery that you were describing, decapitations, and just complete and utter barbarism against innocent people who were, you know, living in a farming community. It's just, it's tough to comprehend.
2: Well, and if you think about the size of the population of Israel and the number of people that have died, I mean, every innocent life lost is, you know, invaluable in its own right. But this is, you know, my understanding is it's the most, the deadliest attack on on Israel maybe ever or certainly in 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 the decades but the gravity of the situation is I think the fact that there was you know we're used to in these conflicts you know even when Russia invaded Ukraine there was murmurs about it you know they were moving troops to the border the world was kind of like waiting for this to happen. But this, I think, you know, the combination of the magnitude of the loss of life, when you consider the size of the population of Israel, like, you know, even for us, like nine eleven was an extraordinary loss of life. And we're a country of 350 million people. So this for them is a, just an extraordinary shock. And then there's the shock of the fact that nobody saw it coming, not even the most arguably sophisticated military in the world. So, you know, it's reverberated around the world, because I think we're all sort of stunned that a country that we thought was so secure. I mean, literally last week, I was telling my kids about the Iron Dome, because my son is very interested in the military. And I was explaining to him that this nation had invented, an inv- he asked, is there such thing as an invisible force field? And I said, that Actually, there is, and it's in Israel, and it it protects their people because they are routinely under attack from rockets. And he thought that was incredible. So you know, it's it's shocking on on so many levels.
0: You mentioned a comparison to nine eleven, and I I myself have a cousin who di- had a cousin who died in, in one of the towers, and that was horrific. But there's an a- there's an added level of horror here because there in, in those attacks, it, it was an airplane, and it was there was something impersonal about it. But the, the personal hatred directed at each girl and boy and grandmother, mother clutching her children, it, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a level of horror attached to it. That, that one human being could have that personal aggressive feeling towards an innocent baby, towards a and, mother and- holding her children how it doesn't, it, it's hard to, to, to even encompass that. And it, it, I heard someone refer to it as a, as a, a pogrom um, and yeah. as in the days when Cossacks would, would, would decimate uh, an, uh, a poor Jewish village in the pale in Russia and, and kill all the babies and rape the mothers. I mean, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about that kind mm-hmm.
1: of um, scorched earth barbarity. And to make videos and broadcast the mm-hmm. videos. It at is such a, a whole a... other level such a deliberate infliction of terror of psychological warfare and as Ashley was saying given the proportion of the population I've read that it's actually almost like nine nine elevens nine September 11th in terms of proportion of the population and because Israel is such a small country every family know somebody who was either killed or kidnapped and of course they you know they they have such widespread service in the armed service so now everyone's having somebody a family member if not multiple family members called up to go and fight so the terror inflicted on the population like you said 9/11 was awful awful we lived in we were in Washington, we were in suburban New York City. So we felt that so acutely. But there were, you know, we live in a vast country, you know, people in Arizona didn't, necessarily directly feel the effects of 9-11 or, and, you know, living in the mountains of Colorado, you one might have felt very removed from the terror. But this, because the country is so small and because of the barrage of rockets that can reach Jerusalem or Tel Aviv and and this Iron Dome system is absolutely incredible. But when it's overwhelmed, some of the rockets can get through. So again, it's just unimaginable.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can drive from the top to the bottom of Israel in a matter of hours. And I saw that the airport was bombed yesterday. I mean, it didn't hit the actual edifice of the airport, but the pictures show, you know, you could looking out the windows where you'd be waiting for your plane, a plume of smoke. It was like in the car, the parking lot. And I know all three of us have flown out of that airport. And another thing that I'm just struck by is, How terrifying it must be for people. I mean, Israel also is a place of pilgrimage where Christian pilgrims, peaceful Muslim pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all around the world, people who are interested in history and artifacts. I mean, it has a constant stream of visitors, perhaps more so than any other place in the world because of its both religious and historic significance to so many different faiths. There's probably a lot of people who are trapped there right now who flew there a few days ago, not thinking they'd be stuck in a war zone, trapped in an airport where you could see bombs. The The time of year that I went in 2018, this is when we were there. You know, my Facebook is reminding me on this day in 2018, we were there. And to think about, you know, parents of young children or or young students who, you know, don't know how to navigate a situation. I mean, who, who knows how to navigate a situation like that? The most seasoned traveler doesn't know how to navigate a situation. Nothing prepares you for that. So I think, you know, there's so many different things to pray for, but I think, you know, probably all of us know somebody who's stuck in Israel right now. My own brother we was do. there just a couple of months ago.
0: You know, you mentioned Maureen about being Catholics in this, in this moment. And this is, it, that's an important point. What, what I keep thinking of is when, uh, St. Pope John, John, Paul II he visited, for the first time, I think it was the first time, a pontiff had gone to a synagogue. He visited the Roman synagogue in 1986, I think it was, and he referred to the Jews as our elder brothers and sisters. And it occurs to me that for us Catholics, for us Christians in general, we, there's, we have a very close relationship with the Jews because salvation comes from the Jews, as we know so very well, and our, our Lord was a Jew, and in that same land that's being attacked by these horrible demonic forces, and we understand our faith to be nested inside the Jewish faith. And for me, it's a it, it's a terrible tragedy to watch our elder brothers and sisters being attacked this way, and, and feeling so impotent because I don't I don't understand exactly the things that went into this. I think it's a, a, a incredibly complicated geopolitical uh, mess that I I don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole I'm not that's that's not my expertise at all and and I'm sure there's been a lot of fault on 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 the right and on the left but still the tragedy is over overwhelming to think about this happening to people that are so mm-hmm. close to us because in a sense the Jews are very close to our hearts
1: oh very very much so are I remember when Saint John Paul the Great said that that the jews are our elder brothers and sisters in the faith and i've been thinking how important it is to go to our lady in this situation when when one thinks of all of these jewish mothers in israel that are mourning the loss of their children or parents because of course they Mm -hmm. dragged off the elderly as well but i think our lady was a jewish mother who knows the loss of a son and um i just think It's, you know, if ever there was a time for us to pray the rosary, this is it. But also we've all been to the Holy Land and visited all these incredible pilgrimage sites. I mean, it is such a holy place. I I remember after my husband and I went there for the first time, we came home and we opened a separate bank account that we named the Holy Land account to save money to bring our children back there because it's so moving to be there and literally walk in the footsteps of Christ and, you know, see, you know, to pray at the temple, to pray at the Sea of Galilee, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, of course, at Calvary. And it it's so moving. You know, I also just saw a movie, and I'm not sure how you can find it on Netflix or what, but it was just in the theaters. Uh, and it's called Route 60. Oh, and yes. it's um, a pilgrimage mm-hmm. through Route 60, which runs through Israel from north to south, and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the former ambassador to Israel, our ambassador to Israel, Um, his name's going to escape me. But the two of them teamed up to tour the holy sites, both from the Hebrew scriptures and our Christian scriptures. And they traveled down this route 60, stopping and kind of reflecting on various scripture passages. And it's a very, very moving movie. And I'm sure if our uh, listeners
0: I, are interested, they can go back. I can't remember how many weeks ago it was, but we we did a show, we did an episode on on oh, that movie. Oh, great!
1: Okay, great. And and
0: we 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 spoke about it with the with the director, and it was it was very compelling. The movie was beautiful. Yeah, they sent me the screener, so yes, I highly recommend the movie. And it does it, it does highlight the incredible um, position of Israel in in the spiritual imaginations of, of our, of our faiths, of our three faiths, right? The three Abrahamic faiths. Um, but especially, I, I keep coming back to it, especially for us Christians. We, we, we feel very close. We feel very close to the, to the Jews and, and, and with them and their suffering. My husband, who <laughs> used to be a Jew, <laughs> although he'll always be a Jew, as his mother tells him, he just came back from our local synagogue. He went to pray there. He's a, he's a, a daily going Catholic now, but he, he just came back from the synagogue. Where he went to pray in it, and it comforted him, and he prayed with a rabbi who, who of course, as you were saying, everybody knows people, even if they're in the United States. That I've talked to many, many friends and acquaintances who are, who are Jewish here, who are very who know well somebody who's been kidnapped or killed, or who wants somebody who's lost a child in that in that rave, and in the attack on the rave. Ashley, tell me you're well. You're in D.C. like Maureen, but what are you thinking about the way that? The reactions to to this uh, to this horror it is in my mind unmasking some of the attitudes towards murder and mayhem, which seem to some people excusable when it comes from one direction or instead of another.
2: Well, sadly, just as it seems the Jewish people will never have rest from acts of hate and violence, it seems that they'll never be you know. There's, there's nothing new about the reaction either. That everybody kind of falls into their sides. And I, I'm just so unabashedly proud to be on the side of the, the nation of Israel. But the thing that always distresses me when there's um, some kind of targeted act against Jewish people, whether it's here in the United States, when there was that shooting at the synagogue or, you know, a burst of violence in the Holy Lands is it seems to have a cascading effect. Like it seems to gin up more hatred. And so, you know, you'll probably notice now driving around that all the synagogues have extra security. And this, you know, my kids went to a Jewish uh, preschool for the first few years of their life because we lived down the street from one. And A, we were always welcomed in as if we were Jewish, never treated like outsiders. It's interesting, the Jewish you know, the Jewish people that we got to know there just sort of said they don't proselytize. They're not looking for converts. Um, So they're also not, they're just incredibly welcoming to people because they want people to know and see and understand, you know, their culture. But the security thing was a real thing. Like, I remember sitting there waiting to do a meeting with one of my kids' preschool teachers and listening to them, you know, measuring how many inches the bulletproof glass was going to be on the new doors that they were installing, um, and so, you know, it's, it's certainly something you see and notice around here is, you know, there's going to be a lot of rallies and, you know, I, I, just think, unfortunately, uh, when the reaction should be that everybody rushes to the defense of the innocent people in a, you know, in a, of a nation state, uh, instead, it, you know, seems to gin up, um, the hatred that always seems to be lying on a low boil for Jewish people, and I was thinking, you know, on the trip that we took to the Holy Lands, we met so many people with so many from so many different industries and so many. But there was one thing that, in fact, I, I kept hearing the word, the phrase Tikkun Olam, um, and that was something they said a lot at the Jewish preschool where my kids went. And I, I remember finally asking what it was. And they said it means making the world a better place or repairing the world. And there was just such a good the nature of the people of Israel that we met again from all different industries, rural, urban, deeply religious, secular was this very deeply good intentioned nature in what they did that there was a sense of purpose that even if they were building like a, a new kind of valve for a, a water well that it wasn't just about profit it was about making the world a better place like that you know and there's something like a kind of christian parallel i see in the sense of like every every action everything we do as catholics even the most you know mundane things we know is you know imbued with the sense of divine purpose um, and so it just it sort of compounds the tragedy to think of, um, that there's, they're just such good people there.
0: What do you think, Maureen, of the, uh, the American left being loath to, to condemn? For instance, academia, there's been a lot said, um, on the internet about different schools that are, that lean hard left, um, the student bodies, uh, the student organizations coming out strongly for Hamas, <laughs> for the Palestinian, uh, cause, even in the face of these atrocities, the schools themselves, uh, the administration is not willing to, to denounce, um, the, the atrocities perpetrated by the terrorists, even just the, the presence of, of elected Democrats in, in these, in rallies in rallies, um, Immediately
1: after these atrocities, supporting the 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 cause of Hamas, it it's very difficult to see. And there was that um, statement put out by the uh, White House office or the State Department Office of Palestinian Affairs that was just a shocking statement, um, which was then deleted or rescinded. apparently. Because but the statement,
0: fact- if I, correct me if I'm wrong, the statement said something about uh, this happened right after the attacks yes. just began, because they were, they were ongoing for a while, that, yes. the, um, that there should be, that peace should, there should be no retaliatory attack. That we should ref- yeah, and- that Israel should refrain from retaliating. They didn't say it exactly like that. I think I have it here somewhere. Right. It, it,
1: it was a moral equivalence. It was one of moral those sort of statements. But um, even though it was deleted, the fact that that's the instinct of some in the administration mm-hmm. is very, very disturbing. You know, I, I don't know. It, it's such a delicate situation. We don't know how things will play out with the hostages, and um, but it is. It, it is um, shocking to see um, this coming from the left. And, you know, I think there are maybe probably six members of Congress that are um, wildly out of the um, mainstream in terms of support for Israel. It's, um, it's shocking, really. One of them is flying a Palestinian flag outside her office door as wow. we speak. Well, and, and we have to remember that, I mean, they're the Palestinian people. But we're talking about Hamas. We're talking about a terrorist organization. And to have any sort of defense or equivocation when you're talking about a terrorist organization and you're talking about acts of total brutality and terrorism, it's there should be zero equivocation. This attack that. this it's a, shocking. An, this
0: attack by Hamas on the Israelis is just as much an attack on their own people because oh. The people of Gaza are going to suffer tremendously the consequences of, of these attacks. They're of suffering course. as they're suffering as we speak. It's almost it's almost like their own people are are their own hostages. They're holding their own people hostages in a war of attrition.
1: You're absolutely right that the Palestinian people are held hostage by the terrorist organization that runs their little strip of land because they use their own people as human shields Mm -hmm. they place their rockets next to daycares and hospitals and schools they they're massacring their own people Mm -hmm. but by doing this and of course they're going to put the the hostages near um near their military sites as well and use them as as human shields but but you're absolutely right the the exploitation of the poor Palestinian people by the leadership of Hamas is it's just an outrage. It's part it's part of the plan apparently. as, as much as plan, one can
0: for sure as much as one can hardly imagine it using mm-hmm. your own people as pawns um, mm-hmm. in this kind of war. Ashley, what do you think of um, the political repercussions here in the United States? There's going to be some significant political repercussions. I would guess that maybe it's too soon to tell. But there are a lot of um, people pointing out that um, some of that money that's being used to to purchase those rockets and launch them over the border, uh, a lot of it's coming from us
2: taxpayers. Right. Well, if anything, I think this is a reminder of the fact I was just talking with my husband about the fact that our president, you know, we've had a relatively tranquil few years Um, you know, the pandemic died down, the economy has been pretty stable, but you know, he's not mentally functioning. Like he's, he's not someone you want in charge when there's a true global crisis. And, you know, these um, Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of, uh, you know, flare ups in Israel, but this is, as we've discussed on a whole nother magnitude and, This is the time when you really want a leader who demonstrates backbone and um, mental acuity. And so I I think it's just an important wake up call for Americans that the president is not just a figurehead um, and that it's it's moments like these that call for for true leadership. And um, and so there's that. But I do I do actually think that as this on, you know, plays out. People are going to,, um, I think, generally line up in support of Israel because um of the atrocious nature of what happened. um and because it's, you know, the sensitivities around the Jewish people are just so unique. So that's at least my hope, but I, but I do think that it's a wake up call. You know, after what we just saw in the house, like toppling the speaker over, you know, in a sort of game of antics, like, They need to grow up and Mm -hmm. mature because we can't, you know, we can't face um, a potential, you know, global crisis uh, with, you know, a president who can't string together a coherent sentence and, um, you know, the type of ridiculousness that, you know, was happening in the house.
0: Do you think, Maureen, that that the United States has done enough navel gazing and and participated in enough stupidities of uh, trying to remake the cultural landscape. Um,
1: and maybe it's time to get serious In an unraveling world, I think we need to pray so much for good leadership for our country. It's um, you know, it's 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 always bad to have weak leadership in a country, but it we're so vulnerable um, with our current leadership in in both parties, really. Um, I think we all really, really need to pray that strong, good leaders come forward.
0: Well, um, thank you, ladies, for joining me and and I hope that all of our listeners no, I don't hope. I know that all our all of our listeners will will be joining us in in prayer for for um for all the people that are suffering in the Holy Land, whether as the victims of terrible aggressors or or the pawns in their own in their own country, which they are, they are holding, um, and all their friends and family here and abroad that, uh, that woke up to a terrible realization last Sunday that, that the world is a very ugly place and that, and that human nature is capable of, of true brutality. So thank you, ladies.
2: Thank you, Gracie. Thanks, Gracie.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Next up, we have the Commissioner of Education of Florida, Manny Diaz, Jr. Um, I've gotten to know him in my position as board member in the the Board of Education of Florida, which has been an amazing experience, and I've learned so much. And and one thing I've learned is that uh, Manny Diaz is a wonderful Commissioner of Education. So welcome to the show, Manny. Thanks for
3: having me. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, I've, I've been asking for some time for you to give us uh, some of your precious, uh, the minutes of your day, which are so full all the time, um, to tell us, uh, so we could talk about some of the wonderful things that are happening in education in Florida. Uh, this, is a, this is a Catholic radio show, and uh, Catholics across the country, and in, indeed people of faith, whether Christian or Jewish or Muslim, uh, I think are, are looking to Florida to, to, with admiration In all the ways that uh, Florida is reclaiming education, Um, not just in a religion for people who are religious, but people who are just not crazy and who (laughs) who think education should be for teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic. So, tell us about your uh, views on that and the way that Florida is leading in education, Manny, please. Look,
3: I appreciate that, and I I think you've you've experienced some of them being on the board. I think. Uh, thanks to the leadership of Governor DeSantis, what we really have uh, done in Florida is is move our education back on into the business of educating kids uh, and, and teaching, reading, writing, science, arithmetic, and keeping those other social issues and political issues out of schools. You know, the opponents kind of try to uh, say that we're trying to politicize education. It's quite the opposite. What we're trying to do is uh, maintain the integrity of our education system and make sure that the parents' role – in, in the raising of their kids and the education of their kids after all they are their their kids first teachers um is maintained and at the same time the, the public education system provide those skills that are really necessary for for a productive citizen and for these uh, students to move on and and be able to have a productive life as floridians and americans and, and so what we've done is is really try to eliminate the noise uh, certainly um the you know some of the pornography and and ideology that's been pushed into the classroom nationally uh florida leads and thanks to governor DeSantis, and, and really eliminating that and getting back to basics and you know we don't care about the criticism we care about our, our kids and making sure that parents have their rights and that we continue to do what's always been at the heart of education which is the community and the family at the core and, and, and really providing the skills and instruction for students that, that is valuable.
0: You know, you mentioned criticism, and unfortunately, there there has been horrible criticism about the what I think are wonderful leadership positions in Florida in in reclaiming edu- the education of children, and also reclaiming um, the rights of parents to be informed about what their children are learning and to be part of the process, and and not just to have. The children sort of be subject to the state, and to whatever whatever vision, uh, political vision is is extant in the state, at, and and being pushed by people like like the teachers unions, for instance, right, which who have a political agenda. Um, some of the criticism, for instance, uh, has been lobbied has been logged at the parental rights and education bill, which I think is a fabulous. <laughs> A uh, law that has been passed in Florida that I've been proud to help implement along with you at the at the board, um, but it's been dubbed the anti the don't say gay bill I, um, in the in the public imagination. How is how is that a completely wrong um, characterization of the law?
3: Well, it, it's so unfortunate that they've taken this and politicized it. When in reality, what it is is to maintain number one the integrity of parent rights. Parents have a right to know uh, and have a say in everything that occurs in their child. It's their, it's their child, their student. It's not the government's, it's not the school systems. And and really protecting those rights. And you look, where Governor DeSantis doesn't back down and really is, is ready to take on that fight. If you're going to fight us on maintaining parents' rights and their integrity to be able to, to raise their children in Florida, we're, we're going to stand in their way every single day and, uh, and that's what's happened here in Florida. And, and really, I think as a whole, if you talk to parents, they appreciate the fact that they can control the education of their child, that they can control, continue to raise their children without having to worry about that kind of indoctrination going on in our schools here. Unfortunately, we've seen that across the country. It's a, it's a movement and it's in a sense, an agenda, including the teachers unit who's really lost their way. They used to be at some point, uh, you know, supposed to be about, uh, advocating for teachers. But really if you look at their agenda, they're, they're involved in all these social issues and pushing ideology, being worried about, you know, for teacher and the benefit of that profession. So, um, we, you know, criticism is criticism. And, and, you know, when you're doing the right thing, you have to file through that. Usually when you're doing the right thing, you're going to get criticized. And, and it's hard to do. But um, that's why uh, I love working with Governor DeSantis. He's an incredible leader and, and really has the backs of our parents and our families here in Florida.
0: One of the, the things that is constantly lied, up, lied about in the media is this issue of book banning. And you hear it from all directions that in Florida we are banning books, and and they even they even say that we're banning books like To Kill a Mockingbird or Anne Frank's Diary, and I happen to know that's not true because I'm in the I'm involved in the in 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 the background of all this as a as a board of education member. Uh, but you even have a better grasp at all this of all this. So tell us how that's a lie about the book banning.
3: How, how, not only are the books not banned, the, uh, well, the Kill a Mockingbird is on a, uh recommended reading list for for our best standards for our schools, our students, and and the other book, Diary of Frank, was actually put on the commissioner's book of the month list. So they they drum up this fictitious agenda and this this narrative to try to say we're banning books. Well, look. If you're going to say that pulling pornographic material out of an elementary school library is banning a book, then you know then you have they have the problem because there's no book banning in Florida. Materials need to be age appropriate and look, parents can make decisions on what books they provide access to their kids at home, um, but our school classrooms and our libraries should be free of material that is obscene, uh, that is indoctrination that it, and that is not that has no place in our schools and on top of that, we really, we really need to make sure that, that, you know, our school systems have the material that's age appropriate because some material may be age appropriate for high school students. But it's certainly not age appropriate for, for a five or six or seven year old. And so that's, that's what they've used to try to create this narrative. Uh, it's a local system where communities and uh, community members can raise objections. It's handled locally by the school districts. Uh, and there's no book banning, but again, they will continue to spin this narrative to try to say that we're banning books. But if you look at the books that have been removed by this process, locally at schools, they're all books that don't belong in, in a in a kids' library. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, um, and and some of them are so and so pornographic and so ugly that they can't be talked about openly in places and and meetings like school board meetings, which you can watch on YouTube if you if you if you take a moment to to Google it. Isn't that the truth, Manny?
3: Not not only not only that, we've seen examples of that across the country and in Florida, but also uh, the governor had a press conference, which I joined him for a few months ago, where he had the clips of, of these books and the, the media cut the feed at the beginning uh, during the video because they were afraid to get fined by the FCC. Well, if you're afraid to get fined by the FCC, these books definitely don't have any place being in in the within the reach of children and and again they can try to spin that narrative but the, the proof is in in the in the in the pudding when it comes to those books and again it's a local process uh it goes through a rigorous review and and local uh, elected school board members get to decide um on these objections and, and look sometimes book, books have objections they're reviewed. And sometimes they're kept on the shelf because they don't have inappropriate materials. Sometimes they're moved to a a higher level of access, in other words, for older students. And that's part of the process.
0: One thing I discovered about books uh, in my my capacity on the board is that many books, uh, many textbooks have had, when examined, uh, even math textbooks, when examined for content, we found them to have uh, CRT and racialist tropes inside things like uh, word problems in math books. Um, this, this obviously goes to the, what, what they call the anti-woke legislation, where we are trying to find um, instances in which the woke, you know, the woke thing, which is CRT, um, and transgender ideology, for instance, is injected into the different things that the children are exposed to through their textbooks. Was this a surprise to you that our textbooks have to be examined, even math textbooks for this kind of thing?
3: No, we actually did that review last year uh, when we were doing our state adoption for textbooks, and we had to reject a lot of the books and push back on the publishers because, look, math should be about math. Why are we trying to inject these ideologies or these concepts into a math book where students need to learn math. We need to raise the proficiency of our students in math and reading and not inject these other topics or ideologies into a math book. There there will be perfect time when, when these students are older and in specific classrooms to talk about theories. And especially when you get to college, you know, you have the ability to have these debates and have these conversations. But to try to put this into a math book where you're now, you know, subtly injecting this into a student's mind, when they should be learning math. You know, that that is that is something that, that we took a stand on. Uh, again, thanks to leadership of Governor DeSantis that we rejected a lot of those books. Uh, a lot of the publishers complied and we, it was a successful adoption. Uh, we did the same thing with social studies this year, but there's a constant, definitely a constant agenda trying to push these concepts, these ideologies, these theories into subjects where first of all, they don't belong. Second of all, they're not age-appropriate, and, and it's just uh, plain and talk indoctrination, and we have to protect our kids from that.
0: Commissioner Diaz, you have uh, a long... Your entire career has been in education, although you, of course, were in the... You were a senator in the, the Florida State Senate, and also you were in the House of Representatives, and those were your political positions, but you come from a long, um, a long life history of, of public education, and yet you're very interested in school choice. And under Governor DeSantis, um, this year we have instituted um, universal school choice in Florida, where every child um, can take the can take their the, the education inv- investment that the state makes in the child and use it in a po- in a private school. Why do you think um, universal school choice is good for the whole state of Florida?
3: Well, this has been a long time coming. You said I spent ten years of my career in the legislature and in public schools as a teacher and administrator before that. And, and as, a, as, a, as a student, I didn't have that choice that families have today. And I, and I saw some of the pitfalls or some of the deficiencies in the school district when there was no competition. When you provide families the ability to make the decisions for their kids, regardless of their income or their situation, regardless of their zip code, it has, without a doubt, improved our public schools. Our public schools today have uh, a lot more choice a lot more innovative programs because they've had to compete and a lot of them are doing successfully and this myth that you know their enrollment was going to decline it has actually not declined it but it has improved the education within our schools it has improved the customer services and the way they treat parents and students It's, it's just been an improvement because when you have a a place where parents have students have the choice that raises the level of competition and provides better options. When parents can pick up and vote with their feet and decide where they're gonna invest those dollars allocated for their education of their children, that improves the system because everybody's trying to raise their game.
0: One wonderful thing we've seen in Florida that our listeners will be happy to hear about because this is a Catholic radio show is that, uh, that students all across the state are taking these education dollars and spending them at Catholic schools. And Catholic schools have a wonderful um, effect on students and they're able and students, especially um, minority students, demonstrate tremendous gains when when they're in the in the orderly and um, peaceful Catholic school environment. So that's that's been a huge positive for us. Is, Is that something that's important to Governor DeSantis and to you, Commissioner Diaz?
3: Yeah, look, parents having the choice of, of how they want to educate their children in the setting, uh, whether it be a religious school or it be uh, an innovative platform, that is uh, really what it's all about. Because the one thing we know is that every every child is different and they learn different. You may have multiple kids in one family, and all of them need different settings to, to really thrive. And this allows for parents to really customize that education and provide the setting that is that is best for each individual student for too long we we treated students as a collective right like they were all widgets in the same and and school choice has really allowed uh, for these decisions to be be made at the, at the at the you know at the closest level the family unit for the parents to make that decision uh, and really decide what the best setting for these students are and a lot of students are thriving because of that and you know there are there are a lot of uh, not just not just the catholic schools but there are a lot of other schools both religious and secular that that do a good job as well as i say you know we have a very healthy uh, charter school ecosystem in florida and like i said before our public schools have thrived because of this uh they've they've raised the bar and, and, and improved their game and and provide better choices for our students even within. I I believe that 70% of the students in Miami Dade County alone um, go to a a choice school. So not that they're going to a private school or even a charter, but they're going to a school that they they, they pick by choice, not because of their address or zip code and and because of programming or, or whatever is offered at that school. And those parents make those decisions to provide those students that educational setting and, and you really have to commend uh, the improvements that have been made by our district schools in, in trying to uh, provide a setting for students that is productive, where that, they that really can excel, and that, it, that is not just a cookie cutter. And look, some parents just choose to, to go to, to take their kids to their neighborhood school because if they went there or, you know, it's an A school and the school is providing the education that needs for the needs of that, of that child, and that's, that's great Uh, But in the instances where you have uh, not just schools that are poorly rated, but schools that are highly rated but may not be providing for the individual needs of that one student, that's where school choice becomes so incredibly valuable and and really can make a uh, change in the life of the student.
0: I'm completely in agreement with you, Manny, and I, th- I can't thank you enough for joining us this uh, today on Conversations with Consequences, um, and I know in your busy day as Commissioner of Education for the entire state of Florida, which is enormous, thank you for making that time for us.
3: I appreciate you having me on. It's, it's great to be with you. I'll see you soon.
0: And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
4: This is Father Roger Landry and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. In the Gospel we'll hear, Jesus continues to answer the objection of those chief priests and elders of the people who objected to his cleansing of the temple. When they refused to answer Jesus' question about whether John the Baptist's work was of heavenly or human origin, because they both didn't want to heed his message of conversion or lose the respect of the crowds who knew John was a prophet, Jesus gave them three parables to try to bring them to conversion. The first was two weeks ago in the parable of the two sons one who initially refuses his father's entreaties to go to work in the vineyard but then goes, an image of the conversion of tax collectors, prostitutes, and others, and the second son, an image of the chief priests and elders, of those who say a verbal yes to the father but never go, a sign that they just follow God with their lips. Last week we had the parable of the corrupt tenants, in which those whom God had entrusted with the vineyard of the house of Israel refused to give the produce to the vineyard owner and killed both his servants and his son, Another sign of how many of God's people had slaughtered the prophets sent to them to solicit the good deeds of the covenant, much as the chief priests and the scribes were then plotting to kill God's son, Jesus. This Sunday is the third in a triptych of parables. Through which Jesus speaks to us about the kingdom of heaven the invitation he has given us to join him there forever, and about how we need to respond to that invitation. He does so within the context of a parable about salvation history, in which he illustrates for us basically how not to respond, which he was clearly indicating the behavior of his present antagonists. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, Many are invited, but few were chosen. We obviously want to be numbered among the chosen few. The chosen ones are not those whom God somehow favors over others. They are those who fully respond to having been chosen by God. Therefore, it's important for us to pay close attention to what Jesus tells us this Sunday so that we'll respond to his invitation, choose him who has chosen us, and help the many we know also learn how to become among those who will celebrate with Jesus at the joyful wedding feast that will know no end. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding banquet a king throws for his son. This is a clear reference to heaven, and it illustrates how God wants all people to be saved and come to this feast. There are three parts of this parable that we need to ponder. First is the invitation. Jesus says that the king sent his servants to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they wouldn't come. It's an unbelievable response. When there's a royal wedding, like for example Charles and Diana or William and Kate, it becomes one of the hottest tickets of all time. People do everything they can to go, but not in the parable. The invitees refused. When they didn't respond the first time, the hardworking king who wanted them there gave them a second chance. He sent other servants saying, tell those who have been invited. Behold, I prepared my banquet. My calves and fattened cattle have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the feast. But again, they made light of it. She says, one went to his farm and another to his business, too busy to reprioritize their daily affairs for the once in a lifetime royal wedding. They were too self-absorbed to care about the king. Other invitees, Jesus said, seized the king's servants, mistreated them, and killed them. They killed the king's heralds, who were doing nothing to them except inviting them to a royal banquet. Because not only did they not want to change their priorities, but they couldn't handle even hearing an invitation. So they extinguished the messenger. The servants that Jesus had been describing up until then are the prophets who had been sent by God to invite the Jews to this feast. But as we talked about last week in the parable of the tenant farmers, All of the prophets were mistreated and killed by some of the religious leaders and people receiving the invitation to communion with God. Only some, like obviously the Blessed Virgin, St. Joseph the Apostle, those women and men who became Jesus' disciples, responded to Jesus' invitation. But God kept inviting still. The king and his servants worked harder to invite the guests than it seems it took to run the banquet. Jesus says that other servants went out a third time and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. This refers to the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles that helped to build the church, which then became the ongoing mission of the church. Like in the parables of the wheat and weeds and of the dragnet, there are good and bad invited into the banquet of the kingdom representing the church. should be surprised, therefore, that we find great saints and great sinners, that we find the faithful and the hypocrites. All are invited. The only ones excluded are those who exclude themselves. But the invitation is supposed to change us. For invited and we're good, the privilege should spur us to become better. For invited and we're bad, the honor should provide the occasion to become honorable. We see, however, that at least one responded to the invitation by showing up without conversion. We see this in the dialogue the king has with one of the guests. Jesus describes When the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man there who wasn't dressed in a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? The man was speechless. The king said to the ten attendants, bind him hands and feet and cast him into the darkness outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At first glance, it might seem that the king is both crazy and cruel. He commanded his servants to invite the man to the feast and then he's picky about what he's wearing? The truth is that in the ancient world, when kings would summon commoners to a feast, they, knowing that most would be poor and not have proper vesture, would normally send out the royal tailors to make proper clothing for everyone invited or otherwise provide fitting clothing. It would be like a rich man today inviting inviting homeless people to a black tie dinner, but then giving them free hotel rooms to shower and providing free tuxedo shoes and gowns to wear. With this history, it's not difficult to recognize why the king would be so upset about seeing this improperly attired man. This man deliberately refused to wear the clothing that was required and made available. The lesson for all of us is that it's not enough just to show up. We too have to be properly attired for the feast. But what clothing has been provided for us? What does God want us wearing? What apparel is fit for the banquet? God wants us to show up with the garment he himself gave us when we became his adopted children. As we were vested with a baptismal garment, the baptizing cleric said to us, you've become a new creation and have clothed yourself in Christ. May this white garment be a sign to you of your Christian dignity. With your family and friends to help you by word and example, Bring it unstained into eternal life. Our baptismal garment is a sign that we have put on Christ. Christ himself is meant to be our garment. We are to be clothed in his risen life. As long as we live in him, vest ourselves in his virtues, then we will always be ready and unstained for eternal life. And God provides the dry cleaning business for our baptismal garment in the sacrament of confession, where the blood of the lamb is paradoxically the most powerful spiritual bleach ever known. To receive the invitation to eternal life but to respond without conversion, without change, without even wanting to show up with our baptismal garment is to fail to acknowledge the dignity of the king, of the banquet, and of the invitation. We're ultimately not meant to be guests at the wedding feast. We're meant to be the bride. That's why the king so much wants all of us there. To stand him up is for us to leave Christ the bridegroom at the altar. Show up improperly dressed is like a bride showing up with sweatpants to her own wedding. God gives us the clothing to wear, but we have to have the humility, love, and dignity to wear it. This parable obviously has an application to Jesus' original listeners to try to bring them to conversion and enter the banquet. But it also has a huge meaning for all of us today. One clear application is to the Synod on Synodality for Synodal Church taking place in the Vatican. Pope Francis emphasized, the synodal church he seeks must live what the church has always sought to be, the continuation of Christ's mission, inviting everyone, including those on the peripheries of existence. The King of Kings wants to exclude no one and invite everyone, but it's not meant to be a come-as-you-go affair. As the King seeks to welcome everyone to the banquet, those who up until that point were good and others who were bad, He wants all to convert, all to get dressed, all to welcome him in return at the depth he wants to be received. There are some who dream of a church that welcomes everyone but converts no one, who rather than helping people become the saints to which their baptism summons them, just wants to bless their sinful relationships and ignore their sins. Because God loves each of us sinners, however, he wants to free us from our sins. We've got to take off our dirty clothes and put on a new, our dazzling baptismal garments. Rejecting Satan, his empty promises and evil works. Rejecting sin and living in communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is holy, holy, holy. Let's pray that the synod helps the church live out both lessons of this parable. Come to the feast, the king in the parable tells us today. He says it first about the mass on earth and second about what the mass points to, heaven. About both, we can say... Blessed are those called to the Supper of the Lamb. If we put God first, respond to His invitation in life by coming to church, arrive properly dressed in an unstained baptismal garment, and seek to invite others to join us, we can be confident that we'll be ready to greet Him whenever He comes to call us to the eternal wedding banquet. This will be the best means for us to be numbered among the chosen few. We'll say in the words of King David from the psalm we'll hear this Sunday, I shall live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life.